Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources, and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Imagine being in the middle of the ocean in the pitch black of night with only a sliver of the moon to illuminate the bobbing waves, which obscure almost everything from your line of sight. The boat you were on moments ago is speeding off into the distance and no one can hear your cries for help over the whir of the engine. You now only have your wits to save you from this nightmare. My guest today knows this feeling from actual experience. John Aldrich, along with his partner Anthony Sosinski, is the owner and operator of the Anna Mary, a lobster boat that trawls for its catch off the coast of Montauk, Long Island. Their book, Speck in the Sea, a story of survival and rescue, is the harrowing account of Aldridge falling overboard and finding himself alone in the open ocean. The Speck in the Sea, the title of the book, suggests. My name is Anthony Sosinski. My name is John Aldridge. Most fishermen will tell you their work is a calling, that it's in their blood, despite it being the most dangerous profession in the U.S., and like many who are married to the sea, Anthony and John's call to the water began in childhood. So as a youth, I had was born in Brooklyn, and my father, when I was first able to walk, would take me down to the shoreline to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. There was a pier there, and we would fish for begalls and little blackfish. And then we moved to Long Island. What and town? I, Oakdale. Right. And when we moved to Oakdale, we had to learn how to swim. We had no choice. We couldn't be around the bay unless we learned how to swim. So there was Byron Lake Park. We went to learn how to swim in Byron Lake Park. It was always cold. It was spring. I hated going in the water because it was so damn cold. And my father would take us. We had a 19-foot, like, Jersey skiff, and we would launch it at a Great River or Hexia State Park, and we would fish the Great South Bay. We would go out to Fire Island Inlet and— we would go far offshore with just a CB radio and a bottom machine. And he would teach me how to navigate on how to 
get back to Fire Island Inlet. And this one particular time, it was foggy, and we wound up in Tobey Beach trying to get in. And there's these naked people that are jumping, like, because it was the nude beach at the time. Yeah. And I was like, Dad, where did you get us lost to, you know? He knew what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, I think he did. <laughs> he would think you were, you were ready to learn a lot of things yeah. that day. Yes. Yeah, right, right. So, as a kid, South Shore, uh, and then when did you decide, you, your father obviously passes this on, like my dad. My dad would be in the water, and we grew up in a town where people along the water— a few people would have these bins on the side of their house. And there was an inflatable inner tube of a tire, a peach basket, and some rope and beat-up shitty old sneakers tied together with the laces. Yeah. And you put the shitty sneakers on, the old used sneakers. You tied the rope around your waist. You put the peach basket in the inner tube, and it floated out. And my father would literally go around those great South Bay and go, right foot. And my brothers and I would dive down <laughs> the clam under his foot. Okay. And he'd go like this, and he'd go, left foot. And when we came home... We had baskets full of chowders, little necks. You know, you had it on the half yeah, shell. Yeah. You had them raw, or we had the ones for the soup. You know, mm-hmm. what I mean? and my this is a big part of our lives. We did it also. We did long. this by bicycle. We would ride our bikes down to the beat, down to the before Great school, South Bay, after school, before school, and we would walk in with waders in a full wetsuit, and we would catch a basket of clams, put it in a bag, and we'd leave it on the bottom, right by the docks in idle hour, and then go back, get on the bus, go to school. And then in the afternoon, off out of school, we would put that bag of clams on the bar of our bicycle and we would ride from Oakdale to West Sable to, uh, to sell our clams. You sold them? And we, yeah, we'd sold them. Like, you know, we made a morning's pay before school in the How morning. How old were you? I was in seventh, eighth Yeah, grade. I was cutting grass then. I was yeah, grass. I was well, we did that lawns. too. Yeah. We, I mowed lawns. Yeah. Diversify. <laughs> But but so yeah. so you were a quote unquote commercial fisherman from early on. Oh yeah, we would go mackerel fishing in the springtime with my dad's boat. We would use the garbage cans, fill them up with the mackerel, and then we would sell them on the side of, of Montauk Highway. My father would leave me there with the cooler. He'd come back an hour later, <laughs> and there would be nothing left, and I'd have the money, and away we'd go right by J and R Tackle. Was commercial fishing? The way you practiced it as an adult, was that a, a foregone conclusion? Uh, at an early age, I wanted to do that. You didn't? I always wanted to be a fisherman. Yeah. And Out I, of Montauk? Well, my dad took me at a young age. So then we would go on the weekends, and we were weekend warriors out east. So on Friday night, we would get in my father's Vista Cruiser 1968 station wagon, just like the 70s show. Right. We had one of those yeah, yeah. with the backpack seat, and um, away we would drive to Montauk from Oakdale. Now, this is for John Aldridge. John, of course, is the person who, when we tell the story eventually, is the one who went into the water in the story that is the book. Is Montauk, most people perceive, you know, when you're out there, you eat as much fresh fish in the summertime and beyond as you can because you always have this image of Montauk is still a mecca of mm-hmm. fish markets. You know, like, like the best fish mm-hmm. is coming out of that dock and out of these boats. Patrick Wetzel yeah, is an old friend of mine. Pat yeah. is an old pal of mine. And My I first with, captain I went yeah, offshore with. I grew up with Pat. But Nassau Shores in Massapequa. Now yeah. he's got a pool company. Yeah. He takes care of my pool. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, his <laughs> company does, not Pat. But, but I mean, Pat's an old, old, old friend. Top of shelf. Yeah. Childhood. Top they're, shelf. They're really great top people, shelf, Margie. Yeah. And all these guys head out there because, and, and they're, from what you understand, if you're not in the business, like this is it, Montauk is the place to go. Is that yeah. still true? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the younger guys that are trying to get into the industry from back west, you know, end up out there still. You know, but mostly in the charter fleet, not in the commercial fleet, because 
there's no new commercial fishermen really anymore. So why? Well, it just it's not cost effective. So where's the fish coming from? It's coming South from South America. Yeah, all over the world. It's I mean, not from monsters, not coming from the docks. Not as much as you would think. The freshest fish you're gonna get is on the east end, but a lot of the American fishermen were pushed away because of sustainable practices. So the swordfish fleet left America and started fishing out of Trinidad. So the swordfish, American swordfish fleet moved and they can get diesel fuel for a dollar a gallon in Trinidad. So in the early 90s, myself, we would take the boats with the mothership down to Puerto Rico and fish off of South America. Those fish went back to Puerto Rico, which then went into a container and was shipped to Fulton Fish Market, which then the same people in Bayshore sold their catch in New York. Today, with sustainability, the American longliner could not make a living with how much bait cost, how much fuel cost, how much observer program cost, the cameras, everything that goes along with it. They went out of business in America. They moved their operations elsewhere, and they shipped the fish back, American Airline, so our local fish market is buying fish that were caught in South America, but they might be caught from the American fleet. What are they still getting in Montauk off the coast of, the, of Long Island? Squid <clears throat> this year was amazing. It was like the best year locally they had. Tile fish fleet still catches their quota. You know, each and every fluke. species... Fluke I love. Yeah, is, I a lot of fluke. Mm. ...is there in abundance, but the practices to make a living economically doesn't add up anymore for a lot of fisheries. So I was told years ago that through whatever influence, through whatever manipulation, the laws, the state laws and county laws were shifted and tilted toward favoring recreational fishermen and not commercial fishermen. They were saying that they they put a lot of restrictions on commercial fishermen and they wanted people in party boats and they wanted them to be buying beer and lunch and going out there and they they wanted them to get housing. They they, they thought it was better for the economy, Mm -hmm. for the recreational fishing industry to be given the the upper hand. When it came to striped bass, for sure. And and is that still in place? For striped bass, basically. It is. That's a sport fish. On the day that this event happens, you were out fishing for what? Lobster and crab. Now, so lobster and crab, now, the better lobsters, you've got to dive with divers on a shelf off the coast of the island. The pots thing, it just isn't working as well anymore. Is that true? No, no. You we, have pots. Oh, yeah, we fish 800 pots. We're, we're 800 fish, pots in the water. Yeah. We're fishing yeah. 50 miles from land. Yeah. Right. So there's no diving so down. So we're, <laughs> we're, we're fishing on the continental shelf. Right. Yeah. And how deep is it there? Uh, Between 300 300 and upwards of 500 feet. And the pots go all the way to the bottom? All the way on the bottom. You put a pot 300 feet down, and you have how many pots? 800, but there's 25 on a string or 30 on a string. Right, and how many? So one lobster per pot. No, sometimes we catch a whole bunch. How do you do? Now explain to people how a lobster pot works. You put bait in the front part of it, which is the parlor, which is the kitchen. And so the lobsters will walk in. They'll eat at the bait, and then say another lobster or a crab will walk in, and it'll push that lobster to the back of the pot. Now, when they get to the back of the pot, they fall in, and that's the the parlor part where they hang out. And in that section, we have escape vents that size out the lobster. So a certain size lobster could just walk in and walk out of the trap on a regular. You know, they'll come in, they'll eat, they'll walk to the back of the trap, they'll be like, oh, we don't want to be here, and they'll walk right out the vent. But when they're legal size, they 
won't be able to walk out the vent. Right. And that's how we catch them. Are people diving for lobster in cold oh, water? Around, around the, around the sh- you know, the jetties and stuff like that. But recreationally, not prof- That's not the same as the surfer riding waves, is the diver diving for lobster. It's a recreational sport. There's no way that you're feeding New York State or, or the coast with someone swimming down and picking up lobsters. There's not that many. You know? we're, <laughs> we would be doing it. <laughs> we're fishing on a migratory animal. So our lobsters, one of the reasons why we're that far offshore is, like you were saying about the die-off, well, the lobster shells were getting thinner. Back in the late 90s, John and I were inshore lobster in around Fishers Island, and back then, lobstering was very good in the Long Island Sound. And then there was a die-off that we lost biomass of the lobsters. So at that point, we bought a boat with a permit to fish as far out as America has a license to be. Two hundred miles, yeah. So we have a permit, and, w- and now that permit allows us to fish for other things. So we're not just fishing on lobsters. We're also fishing on crab. But back when we first started this, there was a value that was very cheap on this particular item. So most people weren't fishing on them because you needed a lot of them, and New York State didn't have processing plant to process these crabs. But today, the crab is now a valuable commodity because crab price throughout the world has escalated. I'm sure that the deadliest catch had something to do with some of that. But they needed a substitute for other crabs. So this crab is what we're fishing on. So we don't really even target lobsters anymore as much as we're targeting crabs and lobsters. Right. Now, the boat in question, the boat on the night of the event, was how long? Is how long? It's 44 feet. It's a 44-foot boat. And when you're done, so to speak, when you're going to take whatever the catch is to market, the market is Montauk or you go somewhere else? Montauk. My, always you sell. And there's yeah. one one guy or one family you sell, or, is one, or people no, come and buy it? We split it up. We Our crabs come into the city and our lobsters stay local at the fish farm in Amagansett. Right. Yeah, that's, that's where they go. Yeah. What's the longest you deploy, shall we say? You deploy for how long? Two days. That's the most. You yeah. don't go out there for a month. No. No, no, no. Not on a 45-foot boat. No. We try to fill it up in two days and go home. So you're on the boat, and it's the the middle of the night, correct? When it when the incident, yes. When you go over the side of the two, boat. 2.30 in the morning, probably. Now, describe to me, because I've been told, I mean, and in the book I've seen, I didn't read the book for it was a while ago. Tell me what happens. There, where, and where are you? So Anthony and Mike were... Asleep, you know, we we fished eight, eight hours from land, so we left about eight o'clock at night. And you know, we have to get everything settled down. The two of them went to sleep, I was on watch, and you know, was keeping an eye on the radar and you know, making sure there's nothing around us. What was the condition of the water? It was about four foot sea, you know, a little, little choppy, not much. We came off of a little bit of a storm the day before, and it was supposed to get nice that day. So that's why we left. And then around 2.30 in the morning, I was getting the boat ready to fish for that day with this new refrigeration system that we have on board. And I had to move some coolers around and get into some hatches. And as I was doing that, two coolers were on top of each other on top of a hatch. And um, I took this, like, three-foot-long box hook. <clears throat> and I hooked into the, cool, into the coolers to move them, which gave me another three feet towards the back of the boat. I would be. And the back of our boat doesn't have a 
back to it, a transom. It's just open. The deck is open to the— To flat deck, no transom, straight out. Straight out. And, so that's, the, and that's designed why? So the traps slide off the deck right into the water because right. we put 25 when traps on the traps, deck. you launch the traps, yeah. And as I was pulling on that, the handle snapped. And there's no net. There's no nothing. And I went flying out of the back of the boat at, you know, 2.30 in the morning, 45 miles from land. The boat's on autopilot. They're asleep. They're asleep. The noise of the boat, blah, you know, can't hear anything. And you know right then and there that, you know, no one in the world knows you're missing. John Aldrich and Anthony Sosinski. If you enjoy conversations about the east end of Long Island, check out my episode with David Rattray, owner and editor of the newspaper The East Hampton Star, whose family has owned the paper for three generations. I have friends in Sag Harbor I don't see. I live in Amagansett. You know, I don't see them until October. And I'm willing to drive to Sag Harbor. The Sag Harbor people won't drive to Amagansett. There's a whole thing. I used to come out for the weekend and pack it all into two days. And now I, I can't even conceive of doing that. It seems impossible to operate at that speed. There's a quality of perfection that didn't, exist when I was a kid and even a a young person here. The quality of having the perfect weekend, the perfect margarita, the perfect lobster bake or something like that. So if there's a shift too, I think there's one of tone and expectation among people here. To hear more of my conversation with David Rattray, go to heresthething.org. After the break, John Aldridge shares how finding the will to survive the most challenging of circumstances is a choice. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The night John Aldridge nearly lost his life, he was heading out on a routine lobster haul on his vessel, the Anna Mary, like countless nights before. 
It was, however, an unlikely equipment failure that sent Aldridge flying through the air, off the back end of the boat, and into the ocean. So I go into war and I start freaking out. Were you relatively fit? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as soon as I hit the water, I realized that it's pretty warm. I don't know why I thought that, but it was warm. But I'm sure the adrenaline was just flying through me. And I was in July. July, 71 degree water, which, you know, you wouldn't go in your pool at 71 degrees. And I was panicking, panicking, and I had my shorts on, T-shirt, a little three-inch pocket knife, and my fishing boots. And um, I was just about to drown, you know, because I exerted so much energy freaking out that I realized my boots was the only thing I could grab onto to catch another breath. So I kicked them off, and I grabbed them, and I got another breath, and then something in me just clicked. And I took the boot, and I emptied the water out of it and created an air pocket with the boot. And I did that with both boots, and I put them under my arm, and I wasn't fighting to stay afloat. I was like, I was floating with no effort. So that was like... Gave me a second or two to Jesus Christ. figure out, you know, how screwed I really am, you know. The boat's moving further and further away. The boat's gone in seconds, yeah. basically, because your chin is on the it's, water. It's nighttime. Yeah, it's nighttime, and then, you know, you're on the water. And is the then boat all lit up? See so far. Yeah, you can only see it so is, far. It is, but the back deck is lit up looking down, and the big spotlight, if it was on, would be looking forward. So he's looking at a light that's getting dimmer and, and dimmer sh- in a really so, so, short amount of time. So he, he's in the water. It's one something in the morning. When do you realize John's gone? So I am woken up by Mike. And Mike was supposed to get woken up to go on watch. John's supposed to wake Mike up. Okay. So Mike wakes me up and says, John's not on the boat. And that's at 6 a.m. And that's about what time we were supposed to start working. So I wake up to, he's not there. That's how that starts off for me. Right. And it's, you know, you, you can't believe it at first. And, you know, there was no, I was in the bunk room. Next thing you know, I'm up on the deck. You don't have your shoes on because you don't take time to put shoes on. And uh, I go up on deck and then I look at my, because I have my navigation equipment. And I look and I realize, wow, I'm 62 miles from land. The boat's on autopilot going south. So we fished. When all those hours went by, you ended up where? Well, 20 was, miles south of where you should have been. So we were 60 miles from land when I woke up. And you should have been And we have, well, we have no idea when John you fell over. You normally would be how far off? Well, the gear was 52 miles that we were going to. But we are assuming at this point, if John was supposed to wake up Mike, that John would have fell overboard some maybe 20 miles from land. Well, he could have fell overboard right when we went to sleep. So he should have fell overboard somewhere closer to land. So I start, you know, I have to turn, I turn the boat around and I call the Coast Guard and I explain to them that he's not on board the boat and where I am. And I beg them to send an aircraft due south of Montauk. From did they? My, they did. They sent every piece of equipment that the United States is allowed right. to send. Did you ever have any other interactions with the Coast Guard before? I have, yeah. Yeah, what, was, what happened? Different things, anything from accidents to boat sinking. Right. So I've been involved in the attempt rescue of friends that were never found. Right. You went um, out to find them. Well, I was, out, I was the last p- person to hear one of my friends screaming for help on the VHF radio. and uh, Boat or plane? Boat. Right off of Block Island in 1995. He sank. The boat sank. He was screaming his coordinates to where he was. Did we, he survive? No. 
Never found them. Nope. He didn't survive. In the morning, we gave him a life raft. It was the mating voyage of their boat. Tricky currents out there? We think that fishing equipment gear had got tangled in his prop early on in the day. Why did he die? It was, it was March 3rd, and the water temperature was 36 degrees. We found the boat on the bottom with an oil slick coming up because when the, they sent the Coast Guard helicopter out to look for him, it was nighttime, and this massive spotlight that is as bright as bright could be lights up the ocean. And the helicopter was spinning around in this one spot, and we pull up, and there's the deck box that was on the boat, with, and one of his boots was one of a boot was floating. It was I remember seeing a toothbrush floating, and a deck brush, and then there was just debris in it's the like morning. A plane crash. Yeah. So take me through. You are found by the Coast Guard. How many hours after you went into the water? I estimate twelve to fourteen hours. Twelve after. to fourteen hours, and then the take me through the stages of death when you're floating in the water for 14 hours. Well, it's, you know, like, it was so overwhelming that I had to break it down into small little goals. I couldn't be so overwhelmed with how crazy the situation really is. So I would say to myself, all right, I just got to stay alive to daylight. I just got to stay alive to daylight. And once daylight came, I'm like, all right, I made it to daylight. I just got to stay alive to find a buoy because I'm thinking... How is anybody going to survive in the middle of the ocean? You got to grab onto something and it would make me more visible. And so I would try to look for a buoy to grab onto. But in the same sense, it's like in your head, you just, you know, your mind is trying to tell you, you know, this is so overwhelming. You can't do it. Just give up. But I would imagine there's a moment or many moments for the person in that situation where you realize that, you can either decide to give up and say, I can't, I can't do this. Yeah. I'm going to decide and I had to that. drown I had and die. That. I mean, look, did you sit there and say to yourself at every time, like you have doubt. You sit there and go, I, I can't believe this is how I'm going to die. Yeah. And I said to myself, this isn't. Right. You made a decision. I was like, there's no way I'm fight. going out like this. Right. And that positive strength kept me going. I mean, keeping me focused on the positive and not the negative. Right. You made a decision to try. Yeah. Yeah. Fisherman and authors John Aldridge and Anthony Sosinski. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After the break, John Aldridge shares his experience stranded in open water watching the search party miss him again and again. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. 
the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Once Anthony Sosinski realized... His partner, John Aldridge, was missing in the open ocean. His next move was to alert the Coast Guard and try to get word to Aldridge's family. So we're not in phone service that far out. You're not? Okay. No, so we, we don't have communications with land. But my VHF radio was able to talk to the Coast Guard. So I was able to communicate with the Coast Guard. And so I didn't actually phone anybody's parents or anybody because I didn't have a, a, a means to do that. That was the first I was thing I asked. communicating with the pilot of one of the aircrafts. I was communicating with the Coast Guard station, and uh, I, was, I had 20-plus fishing boats that I was communicating with on a VHF radio trying to organize the search to look for him. So my whole day, from the minute I woke up, was trying to figure out how John fell overboard where he could be and how I can get help there as fast as I could was really my intention. And you'd had some experience with this. Well, I, ha- I have, but, it, but not in this... Uh, not that close to home. <laughs> you know, like, everything that I was telling the Coast Guard was an educated guess mm-hmm. that I only had that to me as fact. I didn't try to recreate something that I didn't know was fact. So, like, when I found the cooler handle that was broken, Mm -hmm. I knew that that cooler handle was attached to that cooler. That was a clue. So I knew that I have hard evidence that prior to leaving the dock, that handle was attached to the cooler. So as I started looking at our boat... Was the hook on the ground, or did that go in the water? I didn't know about the hook. I thought he grabbed the cooler handle and pulled on the cooler and then he went snapped and he went overboard backwards and left the cooler behind and the handle behind because they were moved halfway off of that hatch cover but there was below deck we have these tanks that are like massive fish tanks that keep the product alive and that's what he was working on so one of the tanks the lid was open and it was full of water so my initial thing was to stick my head in the tank to see if he had drowned in there because, I mean, it's big enough to put 2,000 pounds of crabs and lobster in it. He could easily be inside that thing dead. So that was determined right off the bat that that was not the case. So I plotted two hours from where at six miles an hour, seven miles an hour, where the boat would have been 
from a straight line from Montauk, and it came to the 40-fathom edge, which is 240 feet of water, and I basically started my search there, and I told the Coast Guard, I don't believe he fell overboard closer to land. I believe that he fell way further offshore than we initially thought. So then at that point, the Coast Guard had asked me, they said, look, civilians cannot be in a military search. So we're going to do our military search. Would you coordinate the civilian search? So I said, of course I would. I mean, you know, I'm trying everything I possibly can at this point. I'm sweating at my toes and I'm really trying to stay focused on the fact that he's not there and how are we going to find him? And we have, I have the other fisherman who's trying to chime in, call in the Coast Guard wanting to help. I say, everybody switch the channel one so I have a different frequency and I can talk to them. And each person kept giving me where they were. And I started a grid with the boats, depending on the direction they were coming from, where they would join our search, and what direction if I wanted them to go in the east or west. And I made a grid with 20 fishing boats in the area. But the problem is it's in water that's moving. So the ocean doesn't sit still. The ocean has got current, and it's moving. So that's where we were trying to get the Coast Guard to help us because they were putting drift buoys in the ocean to see what direction that drift was. But they were all trying to focus their attention on closer to land because that's what they thought that he – where he Well, was. last time – when's the last time you've seen him? Eight miles from land. So they started there. You know, when – And radiate out from there. And then radiate yeah. – yeah. So when I – when daylight came and I first heard the helicopter way, way off because there's no noise in the ocean. Water doesn't make a noise unless it hits something and there's nothing for it to hit. So it's super silent. And I heard those helicopters way, way far in the distance. And then I knew he was awake. How grateful are you that this was the person on the boat with you? Because it could have been like what? Tommy Balsack, who you work with right, every well, now and then, doesn't thing. know his way around. Doesn't Some... know Montauk from uh, Maryland. Sometimes yeah. we take the boat without each other. Right. I'll take it with a crew or he'll take it with a crew. Right. And nobody knows anything. Right. So if that happened, so you're grateful that those... he was there. Of course. If there wasn't for any of those other. People that we fish with, you know, no one's got our back except you're gonna get lost. He's a good person to have yeah, on the boat. The helicopters are coming, and you see, or you hear them. I see everything. And I how see soon him after that? Me. I see the helicopters. You see him? Yeah, I see I him passed, twice. I passed him twice and didn't see him. Speck right. in the so sea. So on my first pass back up, myself and Mike, you know, got to remember this too is. We're in a 45-foot lobster boat, okay, that's low sheer to the water. We don't have a tower. We don't have elevation. We're at sea level, all right? The ocean looks like a shag carpet. And if you are even looking for a volleyball and you know where it is, you only see it every five or six seconds and it disappears. That's if you know it's there. So you could easily be 50 yards or 30 yards away from something, but you're looking in the other direction. Well, you're looking at, at them. It's a crapshoot. You and it's down in the trough. Trough. You don't, you don't see, see it. it. And you look back and it's dead. It's like a shag carpet. It's you're just bobbing. In yeah. between. He had a blue shirt on and he's got dark hair. You know, what we had seen, me and Mike was, and it was actually, it was the, must have been the second time we seen him, was the buoys that he was had found. We saw two buoys together and we both put the binoculars on it for a while. And then we came to the conclusion that we didn't see anything there. And we kept going back north. So, so soon after this 
This contact or this sense of the helicopters and him passing you twice in that seat, what time of was that? Well, the helicopters were all day long, going back and forth and not how long seeing did, me. But how long did you hear helicopters before they got you? Because it must have been torment to hours, know that they were here. Hours. They were there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, so that, you know they're there. So but, were you gratified that you knew they a, were... I was turning it into a positive and right. not into a negative. I was turning right. it into going, at least they're still looking for me. Right, they're going to find me. They didn't. They, they went, he went past me, didn't see me. All right, I could just be like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. I can't believe he didn't see me. But I was like, all right, at least he's still looking for me. So I had to be in my head and my mind and turn every instant and instance and every action into a positive thought because yeah. the negative was just so overwhelming and so powerful to take yeah. you down. And yeah. I was like, I can't even think about it. So when you anything. first started to hear the, that apparatus, forget about him eventually coming near you and missing you, and when they finally got you out of the water, how long were you in the water listening to the sound of helicopters? How long were you, were, you, were you expectant and anxious they were going to come and get you, and that lasted how long before they finally got you and pulled you out? Uh, well, all day. Hours. All day, yeah, all day. So who finds you? What's the moment of contact? So I'm on, I'm on a buoy. I got the two, two big, these so you, big you, orange So you made balls. your way toward a buoy. I made it to another buoy, and I had these two big orange balls tied together, and I'm sitting in between them, and a Coast Guard jet flies by relatively low, in the direct, you know, in the area where I'm at, and I and I didn't not think, a prop plane, a jet. Oh yeah, Coast Guard jet, and he went flying past, and yeah. I was like, wow, all right, he must be on a pattern, so he's going to come back around. So I kept looking in the direction that he flew, and sure enough, he came back, and he was closer towards me, and I thought he might have seen me because I saw the pilot in the plane, and then about an hour later, I hear the Coast Guard helicopter coming. Right down on top of me, and I'm freaking. Yeah, because he can't land the plane. He's got to go summon them. So then they spun off over here, you know, got the dive, the the swimmer ready, and dropped the swimmer down to me. And I was, you know, covered up in the water, holding onto my boots. And he tapped me on the shoulder and, Sir, sir, you okay? I whip around, I look at him, and I say, I got two more days left in me. Let's get the hell out of here. And he's like, blown away that I could, you know, even make a joke about anything. But like someone that. told me that you were told that if you'd been in the water even an hour longer, you might have died. Yeah, well, they gave me 19 hours. At that temperature? At that temperature degrees, with my weight. Hypothermia. Yeah, I mean, when I came out of the water, I was 94 degrees, my core temperature. A lot of shark sightings off the coast of the beaches this summer. What was the shark situation out there when you were in As the soon water? as I hit the water, immediately got infiltrated by birds dive-bombing me, trying to poke my head and eyes or whatever they were doing. And then about an hour into it, sharks showed up. So you're like Robert Shaw and Jaws. Yeah, well, yeah, the Indian a lot smaller. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. Yeah, you're in the water. If it was Kicking warm the water, sharks in the face, if it was warmer water. I had my little three-inch pocket knife out ready to go. Yeah, you're ready. I got two more <laughs> days left in me. That's a community out there that can really come together in a way that's like, like any great community. We have an amazing town out there. Honestly, the school system prepares your child for success. Honestly, if your child listens, it's amazing. The teachers, the Jack Perna, there is unreal. I feel really blessed to have found Montauk and the East End as, as home, honestly. You know, for us, the inlet is our getaway. So, like, we go out the inlet. Like, later, after we leave you, we're going to head out the inlet. So, Montauk, to us, hasn't changed in some ways compared to it would be for land people. What did you feel like when you were, like, when you, when you finally found that you had, you know, 
obviously participated in saving your friend's life, your colleague's life. The euphoria is as special as when your child is born, mm-hmm. honestly. That's what it feels like. It feels like, and it's an exhale too. It's like, well, I'm not sweating for my feet anymore. And he really is okay. And this is, we don't have to do this anymore. It's like, thank you, God. Whatever, however this has gone down, we're very fortunate. You quit for a while, correct? So I quit fishing after my friend had died in 1995. That's when I quit fishing. Where? Um, that that story I was saying to you about off of Block Island. Block, the Block Island guy. Okay. Yeah. And I came home that day. I got, My daughter was one year old at the time. We put my wife and the daughter in the car, and I drove to my grandmother's in Pennsylvania. And I had to make a decision on what I was going to do. And I started to work helping Mike in Amagansett open the seafood market in Amagansett. Mm-hmm. And then I worked in the Meat Cutters Union for eight or nine months. And then I went back fishing again. It was traumatic. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I needed to absorb what I was really getting myself into as a profession. Having um, a new family. And I have or... a baby. You, you still know, have one kid? I have two. You have two. Two daughters. They're How old are they now? 35 and 31. And I have a. I have four grandchildren. Both of them have two children. They're both married. They're both professionals. Live nearby? No, Portland, Maine, and in Minnesota. My younger daughter lives in Minnesota. So they, but we do our best to try to see each other. Sure. And, you know, I love them dearly, and I, I'm super proud of them. I think that they're amazing. They are amazing. Yeah, yeah. They, they're what made amazing. you decide to go back to fishing? I couldn't leave it. It was in my blood. You it know, it was it was right down to like you said about walking around the bay and with you. You know, I chose fishing because I was I was like I don't want to work. This isn't work. This is I I still don't work. You know, I I'm doing something that I totally enjoy, and I am one. They of give the you money to do it. <laughs> I, I say to people, fortunate. We're fortunate. Straight up fortunate. Are you still doing it? Yeah, we're going tonight. <laughs> yeah, we're. Yeah. We're leaving here yeah. and getting right on the boat. We're, I can be Mike. Yeah. You can be. I can be. be Mike. I'll be the third guy. You don't need to know nothing to be Mike. No, you can ban the well, lobster. You just have to wake up and go, wait a second. You gotta John wake didn't up. wake me up. You got to wake I'll give up. You a what life time ja- is it? Oh, Jesus, I'll it's 8.30. I'll give 8:30. you a life jacket. Don't worry. Whose idea was it to write a book? Did somebody suggest that to you? Well. It was completely self-generated. It, it was part of the whole thing. I mean, you know, Jason Blum picked up the movie right. story for it, and then it just made sense to have a book. We hired a ghostwriter, and we worked with her for 13 months, back and forth, and got it in our uh, words, basically, and moving forward. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you so much, John. Yes. I'm glad you lived to be able to tell me this story. Thank you. And uh, I look forward to the movie. I can't. It's going to be great. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really cool. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for having Thank us. You. My thanks to John Aldrich and Anthony Sosinski. I'll leave you with a song written about John Aldrich. This is The Tale of Johnny Lode by The Nancy Atlas Project. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Little Anthony woke up in the morning It's too dark and gear and get ice By nine in the evening He'd work 16 hours, not counting the four spent at liars. And Johnny came ready, able and steady. He said, man, the first ship's on me. Go catch a few winks down in the brink, and I'll wake you when the fathoms run deep. Oh, by three in the morning, alone Johnny's hauling. 
The boat set on course to the head Johnny pulled with his back And the handle just snapped And that's where this story begins I said, hey-ho Save Johnny Lord He fell overboard in the night Fifteen north of the canyon The moon's his companion With only his boots and a knife They said, hey-ho Save Johnny Lord He's a fisherman lost out at sea And he's counting on you And the Montauk crew To bring him back to his anime Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.